Well, let me ask you a question. Or maybe start this way. I, I, I don't have as much savvy as my children when it comes to the internet. Um, and I remember a couple of years ago, they would say, hey, Dad, that thing went viral. That sounds kind of negative to me. Because I'm thinking like virus, viral, it's not a good thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like but it's actually really a good thing. And so they'll go on and say, look at this, Dad. I mean, like everybody, yeah, three million people are watching this. And it's all that kind of a stuff. It goes viral. Dad, it's gotten a lot of likes. Okay? Facebook, a lot of likes. So a lot of attention for this particular thing. There's all that kind of language that goes on around the Internet and these things. My children keep me up with it. Do you know what passage in Scripture goes viral more than any other in the New Testament? Well, John 3.16, that's a great passage. What Old Testament passage goes viral in the New Testament more than any other? Yeah, you might think Psalm 23, Psalm 22... It's the psalm we're going to look at today. Psalm 110. It's not a long psalm, but it is the psalm which is either quoted directly or alluded to indirectly more than any other passage in the Old Testament. But you have to stop. You have to ask yourself the question, why might that be, right? I mean, that... That's, that's like really, really significant. It's only seven verses. But it is so filled with the person of Jesus Christ that the New Testament writers had to go back to it again and again and again, and they would say, oh, we learned this from that, and we learned this from that, and we learned this from that. So what I want to do this morning is I want to work through the text, seven verses, as David gave them to us in Psalm 110. And then I want to look at five ways in which the New Testament writer said, wow, Jesus, and what it means for us. Does that make sense? We'll work, walk, work through the text and then see how the New Testament makes specific applications from Psalm 110. One other thing, for what it's worth. Can, can you guys read this in the way back there? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and, and, and this psalm has, I was telling Tim earlier, we were talking about this, and I was saying, look, I could spend an hour and a half on this thing. I won't, I won't, so, so relax. But I'm just, I'm saying, there's like, it is so packed with so much. So we'll, we'll squish it. But, but one of the things that's sometimes helpful for us to remember is this. When you think of what we call the Bible storyline, in other words, how does God's big story read? You, you, you can find it starts with creation, right? Where God has come down and created this world. The fall, where everything kind of goes south because we're all sinners, right? And then there's this long period of time through the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, running all the way through the judges and, and the kings and the exile, the whole thing, the whole thing. It's a time of promise and failure where God is saying, I am going to do something new in a new covenant one day. 
because the nation of Israel fails, fails, fails. You run that Genesis 3 through the end of the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Everything we sang this morning, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to this exalted position, it's all bound up in the gospel. And we go on a mission of telling people and living out the gospel because it shapes who we are and what's most important in life. It's our mission. It's the book of Acts. It's the epistles. And then one day, Jesus Christ will come back and we will have a new creation, won't we? I mean, that, that's our story, isn't it? And wherever we find ourselves reading, we're always brought back to this. Does that make sense? Now, here's what's interesting to me. David is writing Psalm 110. David's writing it at the time of promise, isn't he? It's the Old Testament. Something's all coming. And he's going to tell us about Jesus in his exalted position now and in his future full victory as king one day as we read in the book of Revelation. But you and I, you and I live in a different period, don't we? Jesus has come. Jesus is exalted. We await his second coming, don't we? Does that make sense? And so we already know Jesus as king, but we do not yet fully experience what that will look like in this world. Make sense? So David's, what David says, everything is future. But you and I hear it with ears where we say, yes, as we wait. Make sense? Okay, so keeping all those things in mind. One other thing about the psalm that kind of helps me. It gets um, a little confusing. And, and this psalm, oh, this is so good. Okay, let me say it like this. So much I want to tell you. Sometimes, you've heard, have you heard the term messianic psalms? You've heard that term? Okay. Often, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right? Who spoke that? I hear David and Jesus. Which one was it? Yes, of course. It was both. A lot of messianic psalms are experiences of David or one of his sons, but more than that, ultimately, they are the experience of the ultimate son of David, Jesus Christ. Make sense? And we call them messianic psalms. David, partially, ultimately Jesus. This psalm is totally different. This psalm is not talking about anybody else but Jesus. I mean, it is directly a messianic psalm. It doesn't talk about David or one of his sons and then Jesus. It just says, cut through all that other stuff, man, and go right to Jesus. It's a powerful psalm. And in it, this is what you find. You notice in your, uh, this is the, uh, let's see. This is the ESV. You have the ESV. And I've highlighted in red the times when, when the Lord speaks. 
in, in most of your Bibles, do you notice the spelling on Lord there in verse 1? What do you notice about the, the first appearance of Lord? It's all capitals. What do you notice about the next one? The Lord says to my Lord. What do you notice about the second Lord? Lowercase. Because in the Hebrew, it's two different words. And this is how the English tries to show it to you. When you have all capitals, it is Yahweh, which we sometimes call Jehovah. When you have the small letters, it's Adonai. And this is the distinguishing, the way David is going to distinguish be between God the Father and God the Son. So, when we work through this psalm, okay, just so you're not confused, think of it like this. I'm going to turn my back to you for just a second. It is as if David is saying, God has prophetically taken me into the presence of God. And I want to first of all find out what does Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, what does Yahweh, God the Father, say to Jesus, Adonai? Verse 1. And then David says, I want to say something to Adonai. Verses 2. And three. And then in verse four, David says, let me tell you again what Jehovah, what, Yah what Yahweh says to Adonai. And then verses five to seven, David says, I'm going to speak directly to Yahweh. And that's the psalm. Does that make sense? What does the father say to the son? What does David say to Adonai? What does the Father say to the Son? What does David say to Jehovah? That's how the psalm develops. So let's walk through it, see what it says. And then being that this psalm goes viral in the New Testament, how is it applied in the New Testament? Make sense? Now stay with me. This stuff is packed and it is rich. So let me, let me just put the uh, translation back up and you can kind of look at it as we go along. It starts out by saying, a psalm of David. And now we have Yahweh speaking to Adonai. What does he say? The Lord, David says, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord. David says, and I want you to think about this. I don't know all what David's, how David's putting all this stuff together because David knows that the Messiah is going to be his son, doesn't he? But David is now addressing one who has not yet been born as his Lord. Do, do, do you see? That's really interesting. Like, any human being on that page? <laughs> or, or is that uniquely bound up in the God-man? Do, do, do you see what's happening here? Very powerful. So, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When will that happen? It's actually after creation. 
It's before the new creation. It's when Jesus ascends. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension. The Father says to the Son, you are the exalted Lord of Lords, King of Kings. You are there, there is no other. And I will make sure all the glory goes to you and myself. Sit. For I am doing something that no one else can do. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? So, so David's, I mean, and I, I really, honestly, I, I, when I get to heaven again, I'm going to ask David, like, hey, what were you thinking, like, when you were given all this prophecy stuff? You must have been like, wow. You know? I mean, it's amazing. He's saying, like, whoa. That, that, that's an amazing thing. So, so Jehovah says this to Adonai, to Jesus. And then David, in verses 2 and 3, David directly addresses Jesus. Look at what he says. The Lord, and, and see the spelling on that? L, capital. So, so he's speaking to Adonai, but he says, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. You are the king. And all David can say as he looks at Jesus, he says, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus, rule. Be king. God gives you the kingship. God gives you the scepter. I just want you to rule. Don't you feel like that? Do you ever look around this world and go, man, I wish he would come back and rule? Like ever? Like all the time? David says that. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Are you hearing Revelation there or, or what? Revelation 19. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And that's a challenging passage, but I think what he's saying there at the end of the day is Jesus will never change. Jesus never gets old. He always has the freshness of youth rising up and doing what it does. And David says, rule, unchanging one. Your people will rally behind you. And you read Revelation 19, and don't you read that? Jesus will come one day with the in, the in his glory with his saints, and in one fell swoop, all of his enemies will be destroyed. Wow. David's taken all of this in a thousand years before Jesus Christ comes. Do you see that? You are king. I want it now. And we're with you. Unchanging one. And then David says, okay, let's see what Jehovah says to Adonai, because he makes another statement. And, and David's got to be like reeling, and this is like really good stuff. Listen to, listen to the second statement, what Jehovah says in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, how important do you think that is when God does that? I mean, if I tell you, I swear I'll never do that again, how good is that? Well, well, I mean, hopefully it's better than that, but, but you know, maybe not much, I, I suppose. But, but you know, it, I mean, it's no better than, 
my word, my ability, those kinds of things. But when God swears and says, there is no way I'm going to change my mind, that, that's pretty secure. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Looking at Adonai, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I wonder if David scratched his head on that one. Do you? What happened when Saul, David's predecessor, tried to offer a sacrifice and take the place of a priest? It didn't go so well. And all through the old covenant, the law covenant, you could never mix the kingship with the priesthood. That was a no-no. There was kings and there was priests. And David hears Yahweh say, you are a king priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, whoa. Melchizedek is only mentioned one time, one other time in the entire Old Testament, in Genesis 14. Folks, I, I, don't miss this. I, I, I knew this is, this is going to have a little bit of a teachy feel, but I, I, it, it, when you get it, it's going to be like, wow. So stay with me, I hope. Genesis 14, Abraham has just saved Lot because Lot was part of Sodom, and Sodom was, another king came in and took all the Sodomites away, people of Sodom away, I should say, people of Sodom away. Okay, Abraham's men came, rescued them, brought them back. In Genesis 14, the king of Sodom will come to Abraham and say, hey, I want to give you stuff because of what you actually did. And you read in chapter 14, Abraham says, I will take nothing from you. Because... I don't want to have anything to do with you. I do not want you to be able to say that you did something to Abraham and Abraham succeeded because of you because the bottom line is, forget it, pal. I don't want you to bless me. I don't want you to give anything to me. I want all the glory to go to God. That's what Genesis 14 says around this passage. Which makes this one even more unusual for this guy to be introduced that you've never heard of. And this happens. In the midst of Abraham says, I will take nothing from you because the glory needs to go to God. Look what happens. After his return from the defeat of that fella and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat. That is the king's valley. Here it is. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, okay, brought out bread and wine. He was not only a king, he was a priest of God Most High. And Abraham doesn't say, no way, pal, no way. All the glory goes to God. He takes it. Not only does he take it, he allows this guy to bless him. If Abraham allows Melchizedek to bless him, 
he realizes that Melchizedek trumps Abraham. Do you see that? In his relationship with God and what he's doing. And Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And does Abraham say, No way, pal. I don't take orders from anybody but God. Is that what he says? No, you know what he does instead? Abraham gave a tenth of everything. Abraham. This guy is more significant than you? I mean, we get to God in some way through you? Mm -hmm. You've got this direct connect. Mm. It's all that's happening. And David, when he hears that God the Father, Yahweh, says, to Jesus, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. His mind reels, as does the writer of Hebrews' mind reel. And they realize this. Abraham and everything that followed after him, the promises, the Israelites, the law, Moses, kings, all that stuff. All of that stuff is usurped by what comes before, which is Melchizedek. And although David could never be a king-priest, impossible, his future descendant would be a king-priest after the order of Melchizedek. He didn't know what all that meant, I suppose. But that was earth-shattering. And it was so important to the New Testament writers that they tried to wrap their hands all around that stuff and get a handle of it, and it went viral in the New Testament. Have I lost you? Is this making sense? This is really powerful. So David's listening. Yahweh says this, and David goes like, wow, go get him, Jesus, right? You know, And, and then he sees this, this thing on the priesthood, and, then, and, and now... David is going to talk to Yahweh in verses um, 5 to 7. Listen to what he says. The Lord is at your right hand. Look at the spelling on that Lord. Little O, right? So he's looking at Yahweh and he says, Adonai is at your right hand. That's where you wanted him, right? Okay, okay. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment upon the nations, filling them with corpses. You read Revelation 19, that's right where it's at. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. In other words, he will accomplish what he sets out to do. And nobody will stop him. For David, they're all one event. Sit at my right hand, priest after the order of Melchizedek, until I do all this. And David may have thought that that was going to happen rather, rather soon. But you know, folks, we've been waiting 2,000 years. 
Do you see that? Very quickly. How does, in light of Jesus' exaltation at his ascension for his obedience, Jesus will ultimately and permanently succeed as king and priest over the entire earth. Do you believe that? That changes everything in the way we live. Let me quickly give you just five applications in the New Testament. All right, you have this big picture of exalted Jesus coming back one day. Okay, so what does that mean for me? And will you do me a favor? As we work through this, everybody sitting out here will connect with at least one, probably three or four of these. Okay? Will you look for the one that you connect with most significantly today? Because when, when the New Testament writers read this psalm, they were just like, this thing is awesome. Boom, boom, boom. So I'm just giving you five. I could give you more, but these strike me as the most significant. The first principle is this, and this one's for all of us. See Jesus clearly. And I've listed there Matthew 24, 44. I don't know if you remember this passage. Remember when Jesus goes up to the temple and, and the religious leaders are like, we're going to like wipe this guy out. We're going to ask him some really tough questions. So the first question they ask him is, by what authority do you do what you do? And Jesus gives a question back and says, um, tell me something. You answer a question, I'll answer a question. Do you, um, was John's baptism, was it of God or of men? Just answer me that, and then I'll answer yours. They're like, nuts. They couldn't answer that one. Because if they said, and that's what the text says, if they say it's of God, Jesus would say, well, that's all you have. He pointed to me, so there's my authority. And if they said it's of men, they're afraid they get stoned. So they didn't say anything. And Jesus goes after them with a whole series of parables. And then they get tipped off, and one after another, the Herodians come up, and the Sadducees come up, and the Pharisees come up, and they try to ask him really tough questions. And it all falls flat. And at the very end, before they can sl slip away, Jesus says, can I ask you one more question? And they must be going, no, stop. <laughs> you know, I'm like, please, leave us alone. Um, the Messiah. You recognize he's David's son. Mm -hmm. How then does he call him Lord before the Messiah is even born in the time of David? Could you answer that one for me? And they left. But what Jesus was showing is this, folks. There could only ever be one Messiah. There is no one else that could be addressed before he was born. You know what I'm saying? Jesus wasn't born, and he's being addressed by David. It's impossible, unless you believe he's the God-man. Does that make sense? And when the New Testament writers, this happens in all three of the synoptic gospels, when this thing comes forward, at every point the writer is telling us, you must see that Jesus is absolutely unique like nobody else. He's the God-man. Only he could be this. And he's telling the people, why won't you accept me? No one else could do this but me. 
See Jesus clearly. Number one. Number two. Come to Jesus quickly. Peter, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, preaches. And when he preaches that message, he gets to the end and he says this. He quotes Psalm 110 and he says, He is Lord. He has he will be sending the Spirit. He's the one that sends the Spirit. I mean, the whole he just he and he's coming back one day to rule, and it's like all of a sudden there are Jews that are listening to Jesus and they're thinking to themselves, Oh my goodness, we killed him. We put him on the cross. When I hear you talk about Psalm 110, we, we did that to him. And they say, what shall we do? And Peter says, come to Jesus quickly. He will forgive you of your sins. He will change your life. He will make you secure. You will never have to face his judgment. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. Come to Jesus. That's exactly how Psalm 110 works. And I tell you, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, the one that's most important for you up there is come to Jesus quickly because he is the exalted Lord and he is coming back. Number three, take his word seriously. Hebrews quotes from this passage often. What the writer of Hebrews says is this. Do you know... Everything in the Old Covenant was great. Kim and I were talking about this this morning. Um, I learned to type on something called a typewriter. You ever heard of a typewriter? <laughs> my, my kids will be like, Dad, what, like, how's a typewriter work? I mean, it's, it's, it's all computers now. But, you know, I learned how to do the typing thing on a computer. I mean, on a typewriter. Do you think I use a typewriter now? I'm going to do a Word document. I used to hate it in the old days. You make, you're writing a major paper and you make one paragraph mistake on page two and it's a 10-page paper. What do you have to do? You have to retype that whole crazy thing. My kids have no understanding of that. All they do now is cut and paste. And they got endnotes, so it does all the biblical. It does it all. I mean, I think I'm resentful a little bit about it all. But, but you know, it's, just, it's so easy. Were typewriters wicked and vile and evil? No. But would you ever go back? No. We got computers, man. The old covenant pointing to Jesus. It was a good thing. We learned we were sinners from it. Good stuff. We learned about promises, wonderful things. Would you ever want to go back? Are you kidding? It all points to Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says, if people under the old covenant needed to take Jesus seriously, and God has spoken in a final way in his son, you better take his word seriously. Do you, brothers and sisters? Does this book control how you think, what you say, and what you do. If Jesus is who he says he is, we should take his word seriously. It should change our relationships and everything we do. Number four, rest in his intercessory work constantly. He is a priest. 
And he is a priest like no other because he has become one of us and walked with us. That he might empathize with us. And so in the book of Hebrews again and again, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So come. Come to the throne of grace to find help. If you, if you feel burdened now over anything, a sickness, a job situation, I don't care what it is, if he is the exalted king and priest, you can come before him and say, Jesus, help me, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And he doesn't say, hey, Finkbeiner, i got other things to get out of here. Like, what, who, what is Finkbeiner doing back right now? Do you think God never does that? He never rolls his eyes. Who's at the door? Oh, thank God. Here we go. I mean, it never happens. He says, come, Doug, come. I know, but I'm going to say what I said yesterday again. <laughs> I'm still struggling with it. Come, just come. It's okay. Rest in his work constantly. He's for you. What we sang about, this is not myth, this is true. Labor and light of the second coming, confidently. 1 Corinthians 15, again, references this passage. And at the end, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, I want you to be immovable. I want you to stand firm. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. We live in the already not yet. He's king and he's coming. So we can confidently go forth and speak of him and live for him. And it doesn't matter what people say and do. My king is coming. Oh, there's so much more to say. I, I, but well, I got to be done. Isn't that great? Yes. A thousand years before. Jesus comes. David as a prophet allows us to hear this discussion and enters into the discussion. And the New Testament writers say, that is powerful. And it changed the church because it was true. Father, we thank you for your glorious word. Lord, I know it, it, the passage can get dense along the way, but um, would you overwhelm us with Jesus? The king priest who is coming. May everything we do, everything we think, everything we say be shaped by him. In his name I pray. Amen.